The book of Revelation is filled with contrasts. As we go through the book, we're given visions of heaven and then visions of earth. We give instructions on how to live and visions on how the world ends. We see visions of worship, visions of rebellion, visions of salvation, and visions of damnation. We're told about God's love and we're told about God's wrath. We go back and forth between these throughout the book. Where we're going to be today, we are once again taken to heaven to see a heavenly worship scene. And we're going to talk about that. So open your Bible to Revelation 15. should be page 957 in your pew Bible. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand on the reading of God's Word. I saw another sign in heaven, a great and marvelous, seven angels who, are the seven, who had the seven plagues, which are the last because... In them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire. And those who were victorious over the beast in his image, and the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God, and they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, and all the nations will come and worship before you. For you are right, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After these things I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle, the testimony in heaven, was opened. The seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple, clothed in linen, clean and bright, and their chests wrapped up with golden sashes. And one of the four living creatures gave the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and his power, and no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. title of the message this morning is Facts About Judgment. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. You are great and glorious, wonderful and worthy. Help us as we seek to understand your word. Take it to heart to be strengthened and encouraged, challenged and drawn closer to you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Is the microphone not on? It's at the top. I got to thinking about that while I was praying. I don't think I turned the microphone on. There's a switch on the back of the microphone. Joe, you know I turned the microphone on? Yeah. should turn green when you flick it up all the way. All right. Sounds on. Somebody told me once they didn't like organized religion. I said, boy, you ought to come to our church. Revelation 15 is the shortest chapter in the book of Revelation. In this chapter, we're given a vision of heavenly worship. And there's nothing unusual about the heavenly worship itself. We've seen it off and on throughout our our study. It's where we find this heavenly worship and what seems to motivate this heavenly worship that gave me pause as I began to study. Revelation 14 ends with the, the great winepress of the wrath of God trampling out in the city, causing Blood to to rise up to the horse's bridles for a distance of about 180 miles. Then in chapter 16, it's all about the seven bowls of God's judgment, which are kind of horrific when we get to them next week or week after, actually. And sandwiched between the the wine press of God's wrath being trampled out, the fullness of God's wrath being poured out in the bowls of judgment. There is a heavenly worship scene. And so you have, on one hand, those who have rejected Christ are about to face the severe judgment of God, the wrath of God. 
You have the people who have rejected Christ receiving the wrath of God. And and then you have those who are in heaven, who are people, it's the humans, those who were who victorious over the beast, worshiping God. One commentary said there was already terrible suffering on earth as a result of the measure of God's judgment already poured out. But that the seven bowls will serve to increase the agony of the wicked. Increase the agony of the wicked all sounds really bad when you read chapter 16. We don't have time for that, but read that through this week and and see these are terrifying images. And what makes Revelation 15 stand out to me is that it seems to me that the, the worship of chapter 15 is motivated by the wrath that is being poured out on the earth. Right, so look at verse 1. The Another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because then the wrath of God is finished. The, the, it begins by talking about the wrath that is about to be poured out. Verse 2, we see it as those who have overcome uh, the beast and over his image, and they are standing there, and they are the ones who are going to worship. And they are the ones who are going to sing. They sing about the righteousness of God. They sing about Him. And people should fear Him. And they should glorify His name. He is righteous and true in all of His ways. And about His righteous acts being revealed. This is the song they sing is all about the greatness and the majesty and the glory of God. So they are praising and worshiping God who is previous chapter has tread out the the wine press of his wrath and in verse 16 is going to have it poured out fully upon humanity. So they are praising God for this wrath being poured out on the earth. And, And when we talk about the wrath being poured out on the earth, let's be clear what we're saying. The wrath is poured out on the people on the earth, right? It's not poured out on some nebulous thing called the earth. It's poured out on people. So with this, the question is, how does this fit with your theology of God? How does this fit with your motivations for praising and worshiping and serving God? Where is God's love in all of this that that is has happened and is going to happen, which is worse than anything that has happened? How does a a God who is good, loving, and kind pour out this kind of wrath on people He claims to love? How should we feel about what God is going to do to people? What about Jesus? Where is He in all of this? It's important for us to understand, of course, Jesus is God. And so what God thinks, Jesus thinks. How God feels, Jesus feels. So Jesus is all in with all of this, just as God the Father is. So how do we wrap all of this up in a way that is understandable to us in light of the love and the mercy and the grace of God? So what I want to do today is I want to talk about Facts about God's judgment. It's not so much from Revelation 15 explicitly pulling it out, but it's just these facts about judgment. And as we think about this in light of the totality of God's word, what we're going to find is most like bumper sticker theology 
is flawed. It's not deep enough. It doesn't cover enough. The kind of theology that you would put on a coffee mug it isn't necessarily deep enough to understand all there is to know about the judgment of God. And often our little cliche statements are not accurate, really, at all. So here are some facts about God's judgment. Number one, God. fact one, God is love. Now this is what we all know, what we all expect, what we all understand. God is love. This is a great and comforting truth of Scripture. The one does not love, does not know God, because God is love. Love isn't merely something God does. Love is something God is. When the character and the nature of God is talked about, love is central to this. So God is love. Secondly, something we understand and are uh, often embrace, God loves sinners. So God's Word clearly teaches God's love for us is not based upon our performance for Him. God's love for us is based upon the fact God is love. Which means God doesn't just love people who are good. God doesn't just love those who love Him. God loves people who hate Him. God loves people who are bad because God loves sinners. Again, God's Word is clear about this. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that His only Son, that whosoever that everyone who believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. But God demonstrates His own love toward us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. By this, the love of God was revealed in us, that He sent His only Son to the world, so that we may live through Him. And this is love. Not that we love God, but He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sin. That the world that God loves includes sinners. It includes Muslims. It includes every person who is at present a disciple of Jesus. And it includes people who are disciples of Muhammad. It includes all people everywhere. God loves the world. And He demonstrated this love. It's not a love made of words. It's made of, of actions. His love is seen in the cross. In the cross, God demonstrated His love for mankind where Jesus died for sins. And what's miraculous about our love for God is not that we loved Him. It is about the fact that God loved us. God's love for us isn't responsive. God doesn't love us because we love Him. It's the other way around. Our love for God is responsive. We only love God because God first loved us. These passages express God's unconditional love for humanity. These passages explain God's love for humanity is not theoretical. It's not made of words. It is practical. It's made in deeds. God has demonstrated and proven His love by sending Jesus, His only Son, to come and die a horrible death in our place. God did this while we were sinners, not while we were good, not while we were trying, not while we were seeking Him in any way. Jesus loves us because He willingly came. So all of this, so far, facts one and two are right what we expect. Fact three, though, God hates sinners. Now that's a difficult statement. The old cliche says, God hates the sin, but loves the sinner. Is that a true statement? Well, in some respects, it is. Because as we've already seen, God loves sinners. But in some respects, it is also woefully inadequate to express God's attitude 
God's feelings towards sin and the sinners who commit it. Here are some truths from God's word we have to deal with. The boastful will not stand before God's eyes. You hate all who do injustice. Now notice, God doesn't just hate injustice. God hates all who do the injustice. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and His soul hates the one who loves violence. So, He doesn't just hate the violence. He hates the one who loves the violence. Further, you shall not follow the customs of the nation which I am going to drive out before you because they did all of these things. Therefore, I have felt disgust for them. And again, he didn't just feel disgust for the things they had done, but for the people who had done them. All their evil is at Gilgal. Indeed, I I came to hate them there. Because of the wickedness of their deeds, I will drive them out of my house. I will no longer love them. All their people are rebels. He didn't just hate their deeds. He hated them. Now, similar ideas follow us into the New Testament. So this isn't just an Old Testament idea. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. How much more? So, according to the New Testament, and this is just Romans, there are several places that teach it, All people who are not redeemed through faith in Jesus are the enemies of God. They they have made themselves the enemies of God. In fact, James will say it this way. He calls the people who claim to be followers of Christ but live differently adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is, is hostility? Now, hostility, it means enmity. It means putting ourselves at odds towards God. Therefore, whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So there is a a way to live that puts us at odds with God to the point that we are His enemies. We make ourselves His enemies by our wicked thoughts, our wicked actions. This is what all people apart from Jesus are. And these are not all of the verses that deal with this idea. But this is enough to deal with. These are, these are hard statements, hard sayings that we would probably rather not think about. We would rather say God hates the sin and loves the sinner and, and move on past ideas like this. But they're here. That's what I would prefer to do. I would prefer to skip over them and just say God hates the sin and loves the sinner. Because these are frightening thoughts. Terrifying. But it is verses that are here. It it is what we see in God's word. And if God's word is the final rule and authority for all things, then we can't ignore them. We can't just pass over them. We, We have to wrestle with them and submit to them when we understand what they mean because they are God's word and that's the authority. How do we resolve the seeming contradiction between God loves sinners and God hating sinners. Different people try to resolve it in different ways. The most common one is figure of speech approach. And what they say is, 
when it comes to the passage that talk about God hating sinners, that it's just a, a figure of speech. Um, one noun, it says, is used in place of another that are connected in some ways. Oftentimes, in a cause-effect relationship. Uh, for instance, Luke 16, 29, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. Right? The reality was they didn't have Moses and the prophets. Rather, what they had was the writings of God's Word. The name Moses is, a, is used in place of the writings, since he is the, the cause or the author of the writings. Therefore, when God speaks of hating sinners, it says, we can see that the sinner is put in place of the sin. So that's one way, a figure of speech. Another way is just to take it at face value. Now, if we take it at face value, that means the passages that speak of God loving sinners means God really loves sinners. But at the same time, the passages speaking of God hating sinners, it means just that God hates sinners. Unless there is a figure of speech clearly used. For instance, Proverbs 6.17 says God hates a lying tongue. Well, clearly, God doesn't hate tongues. He hates those who lie. Now, I would prefer the figure of speech approach. That's my preference because it seems kinder, gentler, and is certainly more comforting. However, I have a hard time doing anything that would make God's Word mean other than what it clearly seems to be saying. I am a simple guy, and I believe the simplest answer is almost always the right answer. And so to say God's Word is wrong or it's using a figure of speech when it doesn't seem to be, may seem comfortable, it doesn't seem right. And then there's also the fact in Hebrews 5, 5, the word for hate, it, it is also translated as detest an enemy. I mean, there doesn't seem to be any way to make it mean anything other than it clearly means without watering down God's word. And so if God's word is the authority then we seem to have to let hate stand as hate and, and deal with the tension. God loves sinners, but hates sinners. And that's a difficult thing. Then we come to fact four. God is just. Well, God is love. God is also just. God being just means sin, and sinners must be punished. And I think to me, this is a, a, the reason... I think you need to let God's word stand as hating sinners. Right? The wages of sin is death. We know death isn't physical death. It is being cast into the lake of fire for all of eternity. Or if they live long enough, it is this plus being cast into the lake of fire. But here's the reality. What gets thrown into hell? Is it adultery or is it adulterers? Is it lies or is it liars? Is it whatever or is it the person who does whatever? God's judgment doesn't fall on sin. God's judgment falls on sin nurse. So I think when we say God hates sin and loves the sinner, that's a true statement. But at the same time, God is at some point going to judge that sinner for their sin. That sin is not separate from them. Right? So adultery can't be tied up and thrown into a fire. It can't be put in a box or glued to a stick. It, it is a rebellion and the rebel, not the act of rebellion, the rebel is the one who will suffer the punishment for sin. And so God's word has a lot to say 
about the just nature of God pouring out His wrath, not on some nebulous thing called sin, but on the person who commits the sin. Right, So the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of what? Of people. Right, So it's, it's people, ungodly and unrighteous people who suppress the truth and unrighteousness will face the wrath of God. It, it's not the ungodliness and the unrighteousness and the lack of truth that's going to face the wrath. It's the people. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life. The one who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God remains upon him. The wrath of God is not on unbelief, and the wrath of God is not on rebellion for not obeying the Son. The wrath of God is on the person who doesn't believe, and the person who does not obey. Ephesians 5, that would be a good passage to look at sometime, we don't have time today. See that no one deceives you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So the things he's talking about are common sins. If we were to look at it, we would see it's common in our day as it was theirs. And the wrath of God doesn't come upon those things. The wrath of God comes upon the person who does those things. Who lives as a son or a child of disobedience. Turn with me to 2 Thessalonians 1. Page 908. See another example of this. Second Thessalonians 1, verse 5. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment. So we're talking about the judgment, the just judgment of God. Uh, so that you'll be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. To which you, atten- which you indeed are suffering. For after all, it is only right for God to repay, repay with affliction those who afflict you. So the church is suffering persecution. But notice it's not persecution or affliction, as the word my Bible says, that's going to face the judgment, is it? It's the people. To repay with affliction those, the people who afflict you. And to give relief to you who are afflicted along with us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those, that's people, who do not know God. So the people who, it's not the lack of knowledge about God that faces this just retribution. It's the people who don't know God. To those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, it's not unbelief in the gospel or rejection of the gospel that faces the judgment of God. It is the people who reject the gospel. These people will pay the penalty. These people will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. It's the people. Right. So actions don't face judgment. Actions don't face the wrath of God. People face the wrath of God. And it is a a just wrath because these people have Afflicted the church. They have intentionally rejected the knowledge of God. They have chosen not to believe the gospel. And so people who reject Jesus, people who disobey Jesus, people who choose not to follow Jesus, those people will be the object of God's wrath and they will be punished with everlasting destruction. And this is a just, righteous judgment Of a holy and yet still loving God. 
And this leads to the next idea. God doesn't rejoice in the death of the wicked. And it, it, thus far, it would almost seem like he would, right? I mean, if he hates the wicked and he hates sinners and it's people who face his just wrath, then one would think he must rejoice in the death of the wicked. And yet, God says, do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord? Rather, that they would turn from their ways and live. It goes on. Therefore, I will judge you, house of Israel, each according to his conduct, declares the Lord. Repent. Turn away from your offenses so that wrongdoings will not become a stumbling block to you. Hurl away from you all your offenses which you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why should you die, house of Israel? I take no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord. Therefore, repent and live. So, so God throughout this passage here is saying... If you don't repent, you will face judgment, but that's not what I want. That's not my desire. My desire is for you to repent. Right? There is rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents, the Bible tells us. God does not rejoice when people reject Him. God does not rejoice when His just judgment has to fall on people. His desire is that people would be saved. That's, that's part of the point of the cross. Jesus came to, to save people. God wants the wicked to be saved. God's love for sinners, even in the midst of his hate for their sin and for them in, in some ways, is such he wants them to be spared from the judgment and the punishment for their sin. This, again, is the point of the cross. Second Peter tells us God wants all people to repent and be saved. I mean, any unbeliever who wakes up today with life and breath and all things from God was given that. So they would have an opportunity to repent. The will of God, according to 1 Timothy 2, is for people to come to the knowledge of the truth. God does not rejoice in the death of the wicked. But God does rejoice in the execution of justice. While God doesn't rejoice in the death of the wicked, He does rejoice in His righteous judgments being meted out in the world. It will come about that just as the Lord rejoiced over you to do good, make you numerous, the Lord will rejoice to wipe you out, destroy you, be torn away from the land that you're entering to possess. My anger will be spent and I will satisfy my wrath on them. I will be appeased and they will know that I am the Lord spoken in my zeal when I have spent my wrath Upon them. Again, we're, we're given what seems to be a, a contradiction. How do we deal with this? How do we deal with the fact God doesn't rejoice in the death of the wicked, but does rejoice in the execution of His justice? Pastor John Piper has a suggestion on this. My suggestion is that the death and the misery of the unrepentant is in and of itself not a pleasure to God. God is not a sadist. He is not malicious or bloodthirsty. The death and suffering considered for itself alone is not his delight. Rather, when a rebellious, wicked, unbelieving person is judged, what God has pleasure in is the exaltation of his truth and his righteousness and the vindication of his own honor and our own glory and his own glory. So what are we left with? I mean, how do we? These are the facts about judgment. How do we? 
how do we understand what we're studying in Revelation? Because again, when we get into Revelation 16 and we begin to talk about the bowls, it, it's horrifying. But that's not the end. We're going to get to the part where people are literally cast in the lake of fire. And that's also horrifying. How do we, in light of all we've seen, how do we live here and now in, in light of the judgment we know is to come? First, I would say, this isn't one of the points I give, but just first, I would say we have to learn to deal with tensions we can't fully resolve. Right? If God is as great as the Bible says He is, and if we are not, there are going to be things we don't fully understand. Pastor Francis Chan says it this way, if God is the size of all of the oceans of the earth, and our brains are the size of a Coke can, well, we're not going to be able to get everything there is to know about God in our brains. If His thoughts really are higher than our thoughts as far as the heavens are above the earth, there are going to be things we don't fully understand. And we have to learn to live with that tension and say, I, I don't understand it. But that's, that's who God is. That's the way God is. So considering all of this, here's three ways to respond. One, I would say we must rejoice in the justice of God. I struggled with saying this because it felt as though we should. I'm saying we should rejoice that people go to hell or people suffer the terrible things we're going to look at in the bowls, but I'm not saying that necessarily. We aren't rejoicing in the fact people face God's wrath and judgment. Instead, we're rejoicing at the fact that God's justice has prevailed. We see this in the Bible. Look at Revelation 18. Verse 19 and 20. So God's justice has fallen over Babylon. Babylon, the city, has been destroyed. In verse 19, the wicked threw dust on their heads, were crying, weeping, mourning, woe to the great city, uh, which all who had ships in the sea became rich from her prosperity. For in one hour she has been laid waste. So those who prospered in the wickedness, well, they felt bad. But notice the next verse. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. The judgment of Babylon was a source of mourning for a rebellious world that caused, but it caused joy for the people of God because God's justice had prevailed. And there is, this is where I think we have to keep our focus. In this world, the wicked prosper. And in this world, the wicked escape judgment. In this world, the wicked may get caught and they may go to court and unjust judge may let them off. They may find all manner of loopholes that get them out of the judgment here on the earth. And we see this. We've seen this innumerable times. We see it in the world, in other parts of the world, where wicked people are hurting innocent people even as we speak now. And they are, by and large, going to get away with it in this earth. No human court is ever going to bring them to justice. But rejoice, people of God. They face ultimate justice. The day will come when they will stand before the Lord and they will give an account to Him for the unjust ways they have lived, the wickedness they have done. And there is no loophole. And there is no 
shenanigans they can pull. There is nothing they can do to get away from the just judgment of God. When we see evil men and women seemingly get away with their evil, as disciples of Jesus, we can rejoice because we know that's not the truth. There is a just judgment and a just judge they will face. And we can rejoice in this. So we rejoice in the justice of God, but we also marvel the grace of God. Now the old saying is there, but by the grace of God go I. And while that isn't explicitly taught in Scripture, I think it is implicitly. Paul asked asked the Corinthians, Who considers you as superior? What do you have you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Each one of us should remember we too have sinned against a holy God. We have earned the wages of sin on our own merits. We deserve the wrath of God we see in the book of Revelation. But if we have repented of our sins and we have believed in Jesus Christ, we will not face this wrath. And it is because of the grace of God. Marvel at God's grace shown to you. Marvel at the goodness of God that brought you to repentance. Marvel at the revelation of the gospel that struck a chord in your heart and made you see you need Jesus. Marvel at the grace of God keeping you from day to day so you don't turn and walk away from the Lord. Marvel that while this is terrible, this is not your fate. Even though we deserve it. And again, now I think some... Maybe even some here would say, well, I don't deserve that. And if that would be your attitude, I would say to you, you should repent and believe the gospel and be saved. For if you do not understand that you deserve the just wrath of God, you are not truly born again yourself. You need the grace of God and then you can marvel at the grace of God. So we... Rejoice at the justice of God, marvel at the grace of God, and then tell everyone we can about the Son of God. The justice and the judgment of God is not just for murderers, terrorists, or rapists. As we saw in 2 Thessalonians, the wrath of God will come on those who do not know the Lord and who have not obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our unbelieving friends will face the wrath we've seen here. Our unbelieving family members will face the wrath we've seen here. Our unbelieving co-workers will receive the wrath we've seen here. So long as they persist in their unbelief. See, well, they're they're good people. They're kind. They do this, they do that. None of that matters. There is only one way for them to be out from under the wrath of God, the just judgment of God and that is to repent of their sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and knowing that and being a disciple of Jesus should motivate us to do everything we can to tell everyone we can about Jesus so they can be saved from the wrath to come the apostle Paul I love this verse this passage he says I'm under the obligation to both the Greeks to the uncultured, both to the wise, to the foolish. So for my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. But I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God 
for salvation for everyone who believes, the Jew first and also to the Greek. We need to let the facts of judgment we've seen today cause us to fully embrace what Paul says here. And if we embrace this, we will first embrace our obligation to share the gospel. And I love the way Paul words it. I'm under obligation both to the Greeks, the uncultured, the wise, to the foolish. Basically under everybody. Not those who are like me, those who are not like me. Right? There are people around us who are like us. And we ought to feel an obligation to share the gospel with them. And there are people around us who are very unlike us in any number of ways. But the obligation to share the gospel is still there. Our obligation isn't just to share the gospel with those we like, those who are look like us, dress like us, talk like us. It is with all people. Pastor David Platt says every saved person on this side of heaven owes the gospel to every lost person on this side of hell. There is an obligation we ought to feel to tell everybody we can about Jesus. Then as we embrace our obligation, we also are eager to share the gospel. Paul says, I'm eager to preach the gospel. It was an excitement. He, he was looking forward to it. When opportunities arise, we ought to be excited about that. I, there's something wrong when we're excited to talk about anything with other people but Jesus. Right? I mean, if we see a good TV show, we're, we'll be excited to tell people about it. We eat at a good restaurant, we'll be excited to tell people about it. We, we try a new recipe that's good, we're excited to tell people about it. If Jesus is the greatest good news there is, why are we not excited to tell people about it? Surely, surely we can say something is wrong with our hearts and our souls if we're excited and eager to talk about anything other than Jesus. We should be eager and then trust in the power of the gospel. It's not about our being eloquent. It's not about our having all the right words and all the answers to any question they may ask. The power is in the gospel itself. The power is in the Spirit who speaks through us, through the Word, as we share the gospel. The power is not ours anyway because the glory goes to God when someone is saved. Trust The gospel is the power of God for salvation. It is the message people need, not not anything else. Trust the gospel. Share the gospel. Trust Jesus. Talk about Jesus. Much I could say here, but I, I won't get off on a rabbit trail. I'll just say we should embrace our responsibility and our obligation to share the gospel. We should be eager to share the gospel. And we should trust in the power of the gospel. So today if you are here and you are a disciple of Jesus, this is what I think we should pray about today. We should pray to feel the weight of our obligation. For we do have an obligation. We should pray to be eager until God makes the gospel like a fire shut up in our bones that must come out. And we pray until we are more confident in the power of the gospel to save a soul than we are in our abilities or we are in our inabilities or we are in their rebellion or we are in anything else to where we share the gospel in absolute confidence. 
that it is the power of God unto salvation. And if you're here today and you have never repented of your sins and you have never believed in Jesus Christ, this is your need today. This is what you must do. You say, well, I'm a good person. Well, I, I hope that's true and, and I won't argue with you about it. But your good morals won't save you. Your good morals won't save you from the wrath to come. Do you know Jesus? Have you obeyed the gospel of God, which is repent and believe? That's the response of the gospel. If you have never personally repented of your sins and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are lost. Whether you're a church member, whether you've been baptized, whether you're a good moral person, whether you love your kids and good to your spouse, have you personally repented of your sins and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ? If you have not, the judgment of God waits on you. And I'm not trying to scare you. I'm just trying to be honest. I have borderline nightmares about people who sit in our church week after week, month after month, year after year, and walk out lost because they think they're good moral people. Walk out lost because they think they're Americans and that's good enough. Walk out lost because they vote a certain way and they think that's enough. Walk out lost because they trust in anything other than Jesus. Dear friend, if you trust in anything other than Jesus for your escaping the judgment to come, you are lost. Today, I'm imploring you, repent of that and trust only in Jesus. Let's stand.